Try My Best Practice, the evidence-based electronic health record system created by therapists for therapists. With responsive customer support and a comprehensive how-to library of step-by-step screenshots, it's no wonder My Best Practice has five stars on Google, Trustpilot, Captera, and Software Advice outranking other EHRs. My Best Practice was the first EHR choosing therapy awarded five out of five stars for its excellence. And Captera awarded My Best Practice this year's Emerging Favor EHR. My Best Practice makes evidence-based care seamless with scheduled auto-scored and automatically charted routine outcome measures, customizable interventions, symptom checklist, and an easy-to-use note system for evidence-based therapies. Having an EHR you could trust is a game-changer for running a successful, stress-free practice. If you are an evidence-based therapist, My Best Practice is your EHR. Try My Best Practice free for 14 days. Get an additional three months free by using mbpractice.com sanity. Use that link today and see why everyone who switches loves it. The link can be found in our show notes. So many people are looking to live happier, more stress-free lives. We provide interviews from mental health experts across various fields because you know finding quality information isn't always easy. Let's find more sanity together. Okay, welcome back to the second episode of the Psychedelic Assisted Therapy podcast. Podcast episodes, I said episode twice, oopsie, um, of the ABCT Sanity uh, Collaboration. Um, we just left off talking about um, potential harms in doing psychedelics incorrectly, and that could either be recreation, recreationally taking too high of a dose or going into the Wild Wild West um, treatment in the psychedelic underground, which I think is a very interesting uh coin phrase um that could cause harm so um what what are some of the harms that could happen if someone does take too high of a dose or does have a bad experience doing psychedelics yeah so i think the harms are are more psychological in nature um the experiences can be really scary um you know there's the one of the terms that's used a lot to describe um psychedelic experiences is ego dissolution uh, this idea of uh, our sense of self being so dramatically altered that um, we kind of lose touch with having a body. We might lose touch with uh, language, not be able to kind of communicate or speak. Um, and, uh, you know, that 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 might sound really, um, uh, you know, pleasant or positive, and it can be. It can be really transcendent. It can be really... Um, uh, you know, have associated with like uh, feelings of bliss or awe or uh, joy, um, but it could also be really scary if you're not prepared for that, or um, if you're in a place where you don't feel completely safe. Um, so uh, the experiences themselves can involve a lot of strong emotions, both you know, on, on any end of the spectrum. So, you know, we're mentioning some of the positive emotions, the the joy, the transcendence, uh, the, the sense of connectedness to, to all um, can be really powerful and transformative emotional experiences for people that lead to positive change. Um, but it's possible to also experience a lot of strong negative emotions, profound sadness, profound fear, um, grief, um, sometimes 
you know, with psychedelics, it's not uncommon for for prior trauma to come up. Um, this is a commonly reported um, experience where people will sometimes even re-experience their trauma. And in cases where they they didn't necessarily, they, they might have said before, I've already dealt with that, I don't think about it anymore, and yet it still might come up in a psychedelic experience, which, you know, if you're prepared for it and you have the right support and it's sort of informed consent and you go into knowing that is one thing, but if you take mushrooms at a concert and you don't know that trauma can come up and, and it starts to come up, you might really start to panic and think, something's wrong. I, I did something horrible to myself. You know, people will often say things like I broke my brain or I damaged myself. Um, and, you know, sometimes these experiences can be traumatic for people in, in, uh, in these sorts of environments where uh, there might be a lack of safety uh, if they're out, you know, at a, at a, uh, like a concert or something, and there's a lot of people and they get lost from their friends, that can be you know, really terrifying in an altered state of consciousness. Um, so, you know, there's a wide range, I think, of of ways that people can can have uh, challenging experiences. Um, and you know, there's this there's this notion in psychedelic culture that there's no such thing as bad trips, uh, meaning that um, any challenges that come up have some sort of therapeutic benefit once you work through them and. Uh, I, I don't, uh, my opinion is that that's not exactly helpful uh, advice. Uh, I think in the context of, of the research and, and safe, supportive environments, that is mostly true. Uh, when, when things come up, they, they can sometimes lead to some, some sort of change um, that's positive. But I think in uncontrolled settings, sometimes a bad trip is just a bad trip. Like it's just scary or it's just overwhelming. Um, and that that can stay with somebody for some time afterwards. Um, I, I've had a client, more than one client, that have taken shrooms or something, and they had a really bad trip. And then it has since since it caused the panic disorder, where they now fear physical symptoms, and it was kind of like the triggering event that led to years of panic disorder or the fear <laughs> that the psychedelic experience caused some some men mental harm. And if you think about it, that overlaying with like an OCD kind of like health mental, I call it mental health anxiety, like um, what we would call hypochondriasis back in the day for physical health, there is mental health um, fears like that where you get obsessive. And, and I've seen a bad combination of that. I did the shrooms, I did whatever, I had a bad experience and now my mental health and cognitive functioning is permanently disrupted and doing exposure. I do exposure therapy um, around that. Um, but yeah, Jason, same, same question. What, what's your thoughts about some of the harms that, that psychedelics could do if done incorrectly? Yeah, I think, I think you also point to one of the things we didn't talk about too much was that the psychedelics can also have really powerful somatic effects that um, just they can manifest as just very powerful feelings in the body, the most powerful you know, experience of dizziness you've ever had or fear or nausea or just sort of a sense of transformation of your bodily felt sense. And that can be um, potentially very helpful to people what happens or it can be very, very difficult. And um, I guess we, I, I do want to get across the, just the message that these are powerful substances that need to be used very carefully. And um, I think sometimes as this is, as psychedelics are becoming more and more of a, of a thing and there's more and more hype, I think people are getting disconnected from the cultural context that these are often embedded in 
and that that have largely served to teach people how to do these things safely and in a way that can be beneficial. Um, and so uh, there there are a lot of there are a lot of risks that people don't maybe appreciate or know about. Um, there's also just physical risks too. Like Brian pointed out that primarily the risks are psychological or maybe interpersonal. Like you could be assaulted um, or mistreated because you're so vulnerable in the higher dose experiences. Um, but there are physical risks. It, you know, the most obvious with would be something just someone walks into the street, they're disoriented, and they walk in front of a car and get hit, or something like that. Or they, you know, it's not uncommon someone might get dizzy and fall down and hit their head or something. Um, but it's also important to keep in mind that there are many different psychedelics, and while some of them are physiologically very safe, some of them aren't. And so um, you you do need to be very educated about the specific psychedelic and they can also have interactions with other drugs and you know many of us are on medications and some of those medications interact poorly with some of the psychedelics and it's all very complicated um, and not that well researched even so there are there are a whole range of risks and that's why um, we think that you know we think the research is so important to 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 try to figure that out um, how to do this stuff safely and and then i guess in terms of um talking about talking about possible harms there's a there's another kind of harm that i think is also worth mentioning which is the harms that have occurred um culturally due to psychedelics it mentioned the kind of oppression of psychedelic use in europe but also um, there's been a lot of harms that have happened to indigenous communities and, you know, we're in the United States and indigenous communities in the United States or in the Americas who many of them uh, had ceremonies that were really core to their, their cultural practices and their, their, their health. Um, and in addition to Europeans coming in as, you know, settlers and just wiping out people, um, there was a whole layer of intentional suppression of cultural practices as well. And now as, uh, you know, Americans or Europe, European white Americans have, I'm doing the air quotes, you know, rediscovered psychedelics or discovered psychedelics now, there has been a lot of cultural appropriation that has that uh, come, along, come along with that. And um, it's led to another wave of exploitation of, of indigenous peoples um, as part of this as well. And um, that's something that hasn't really had as much attention. And I think if you're getting involved with psychedelics, either as a therapist, um, a facilitator, or as a consumer or user, um, I think people really you know, should learn about that, that, that cultural, um, history and appropriation that is part of what it means to be particularly like a white person using, using psychedelics that you are benefiting from something that, um, is wrapped up in a lot of exploitation and harm. Mm. And, um, I mean, I, I don't know too much about this, but can you imagine the cultural impact where you're, you've been doing something for hundred hundreds of years that was part central to your culture and psychedelic use, like you said, 
has been central to many cultures and experience and healing and connecting with um, gods, God, um, spirituality, part of religion. And then someone coming and saying, no, that's bad. You, 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 you can't, you can't do that. Um, and, and just, just the complete sloth of your culture being outlawed or taken away. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, anywhere just, can, that, oh, yeah, add, add one more harm that might be good for, for listeners to know about is, is the, uh, potential for classic psychedelics to exacerbate, um, underlying, uh, psychosis or, um, bipolar disorder. And so traditionally in the trials, folks with a history of, um, psychosis or, you know, immediate family history of, of a psychotic disorder or bipolar disorder, they've been excluded from the trials. Uh, because it might be the case that and there's, you know, there's some case reports of psychedelics um, uh, kind of triggering a psychotic episode uh, or a manic episode. Again, if you have an underlying predisposition, there's no evidence that it causes that, um, but it's just something to to be aware of. And and I'll say it's true that I've met people with psychotic disorders and bipolar disorders who've reported that psychedelics have been helpful to them. So it's not a blanket statement to say that it's absolutely dangerous, but it's something to be aware of if you have that history to be extra careful. Okay. No, that's a, that's a good, I remember learning about that in um, drugs and human behavior, but I'm not <laughs> sure how widespread that, that knowledge, that knowledge is. Um, so th this is always, I think one of the tougher questions that I ask people, but when people are, are listening to this, they're like, what, what is actually going on? Like if I was sitting in the room or if I was a patient and I was experiencing it, like experientially or like, like what is this? And for, for you two, because you do it so often, it's like, so like me going, what does a CBT therapy session look like? And me trying to just like, like, of course you just do da 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 and then we'll do an exposure and then, you know, whatever it is. But, but for those of us that are wondering, what does it actually look like? Can you give us some insight into what you're talking to people about? What are typical experiences people have when they're laying down and they're blindfolded and they're listening to, I'm assuming music. Cause you said headphones. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so, so yeah, sorry. I'll stop talking, please. <laughs> Do you want to take it, Brian? Or you we're talking about the medicine start. session itself. So, yeah, and then, and then the integration, yeah. So again, these things vary, but I'm going to speak more from the clinical trial sort of standpoint. And um, so typically the sessions would be a full day. They'd be scheduled for a full day. The client would be there, participant would be there for the for eight hours. And they um, they would arrive in the morning and there'd be a bit of, there'd be a bit of preparation where you'd be kind of orienting, going over some of their... Um, intentions or goals for expectations, things like that for the, for the session, reviewing kind of final safety related topics, um, and just kind of talking about the plan for the day. But also usually be conversations about the role of touch. Um, you know, touch is something that most, I think therapists are not well-trained to use and, um, we're often very uncomfortable with it, but, um, being able to touch as part of a psychedelic session is often um, seen as quite important and can be quite valuable when someone's say in a very a very powerful emotional state or psychological state to have the ability to 
hold someone's hand to ground them or something like that can be um, quite a, quite valuable. And so there's usually a conversation. This usually already happened as well previously, but there's a kind of revisiting the the role of touch and making sure there's consent about how much touch is okay and how it will be used. Um, the, t- the type of touch that's used is re- usually relatively limited, but it's an important part. And then uh, typically the person is um, offered whatever is the, the substance. And um, shortly thereafter, they typically will put on uh, some eye shades and like blackout eye shades and um, a nice pair of head headphones with good bass. And uh, <laughs> they go inside and there's a, usually a curated playlist of songs that um, uh, start off more gentle and soothing and um, usually become more intense um, as the medicine peaks, as the experience peaks, the dose peaks. Um, So usually two or three hours in, the music is often more intense in various ways. It could be more rhythmic or or, um, it could be more soaring or um, maybe even dissonant, Um, but it's usually more evocative. And then the the music kind of tends to tail off again as the person comes out of the medicine and um, into more, usually more gentle and more introspective types of songs, usually not in a language that the person understands. So we we don't want them to kind of uh, go on the trip that the singer is giving them, you know, and so the music kind of leaps. The, the language kind of leads them down that we want them to have the freedom to have their mind go where it needs to go, to go into the topics or the memories that maybe they need to process or that they would benefit from, from touching into, um, in, in the session. Um, and usually this is, uh, again, it depends on the psychedelics. We're talking about classic psychedelics. People will spend the majority of their time with their eye shades on what we call going inside. And, um, but they will, they will come out at times and perhaps talk to the, to the therapist, but the therapists are largely there to sort of help them through difficult times and then to help kind of redirect them in, inside. Um, and the experience of what happens for the person is just incredibly variable. Um, you know, and, and so we've described a number, I think, of the experiences that 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 are typical in, with psychedelics. Um, but I would say um, from maybe what might be helpful to talk about is what we think we know about what experiences tend to be associated with better outcomes. Yeah, great. Um and so maybe I'll, I'll speak to maybe a couple things and then Brian, maybe you could add more as well. So the, the one that's gotten, I think the highest, uh, the largest amount of attention is the occurrence of mystical experiences. And so um, what, what is the most central aspect of a mystical experience is the perception of unity, a sense that you are one with the universe and that there is no separate sense of self. There's just the universe and uh, you as the universe. And um, the that experience also tends to come with other things, but the central experience is that sense of unity. Um, and when people have this mystical experience, that, that often predicts 
better outcomes. There are quite a few studies at this point that have associated the, the intensity of the mystical experience with, with beneficial effects, whether that's depression reduction, uh, whether that's um, changes in health, uh, like death anxiety uh, with people who have uh, terminal illnesses um, or severe illness, um, whether that's uh, improvements, in, reductions in uh, smoking, um, the more the likelihood of being able to actually stop smoking, for example, has been associated with uh, the occurrence of mystical experiences. So there's something about this transcendent experiences that seems to have enduring effects that as people take that into their life and coping with their normal day-to-day -day, uh, situations and emotions and thoughts that that can transform how they, how they live their life subsequent, subsequently. I'd say the, the other variable that has a fair amount of research um, supporting at this point is uh, psychological flexibility. So this kind of concept that emerged out of the ACT model originally um, uh, and is this idea of uh, basically being able to have the capacity to um, you know, embrace your experiences, not get so caught up in your thoughts, know what's important to you and be able to take action towards those. It's kind of psychological flexibility of not getting so stuck in your normal ways of responding that when that occurs during psychedelic experiences, we also have quite a few studies also showing that, um, uh, psychedelics are associated with improvements, uh, with, of psychological flexibility. I guess I meant to say, I guess I, I realized as I was talking, this is not very podcasty of me. Um, I misspoke, but we know that the psychedelic experiences are associated with improvements in psychological flexibility after is what I should have said. Not that when psychological flexibility happens during the sessions that predicts subsequent uh, improvements, we know that the psychedelic experience will uh, associate are associated with improvements in psychedelic psychological flexibility. And then when people have improvements in psychological flexibility as a result of the psychedelics, that predicts other kinds of improvements like depression or smoking or things like that. So it seems like changes in psychological flexibility are also implicated in how, uh, and how psychedelics function. Um, I'm very fascinated with the, um, ego dissolution. Is that the right word? Um, and I'm going to try and describe this without butchering it, but the way that I look at it, it's like a dampening, of your yourself in your experience in, in your experience so reducing your biases reducing your perspective in a way so you can see things more universally or outside of your typical box maybe is a better way of saying it um if that's correct how, how much is the therapeutic and maybe we don't know like the therapeutic effect mediated by that ability to chill that out so you can think more broadly Yeah, I, I would say that um, it, it's not as much of a dampening or a lessening. It's more of an expansiveness, right? Mm. So it's it's a change. It's an expansiveness. And it is it is kind of very often like a th being outside of my belief system, being outside of um, the way I normally experience my body or the way I normally experience sounds and colors. Um, it's sort of like, you know, it's kind of a cliche example 
but if you think about a fish doesn't really know it's in water until one day it flops out of the water. And now it has a completely new context in which to really understand what water is. But until then, we don't see it. The fish doesn't even know it's in water, right? And so we are walking around constantly filtering information based on our history, experiencing life in a very limited way, right? That's kind of what our brains have evolved to do is to really reduce all of the sensory information in a way that it thinks is helpful for us, uh, but often winds us, you know, winds up producing suffering. And so this idea of stepping outside of our thoughts and our feelings and the way we normally experience ourselves can, can be associated with a profound sense of uh, relief or uh, a sense that there's more out there or that I'm not, I'm not limited by that. That's just part of me, but, but there's other possibilities. Um, so it, it is expansive or it increases like, you know, like Jason said, psychological flexibility. Um, and so, it, it's, you know, it's not just about some people will say, well, isn't this just about getting high or is this is just some form of escape? Um, and it might be a temporary relief, but it, it often can be for folks who are profoundly depressed, let's say, um, really therapeutic for them to experience a sense of bliss or hope or, 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 or joy that they didn't think was possible. And it kind of proves to them like, you know, it is possible for, for their brains to experience these, these, these emotions and to have a greater range. And I think, you know, psychedelics also, one way I think about psychedelics and how they work is uh, that's in contrast to say antidepressants, which is one great tool. I think it, it has its place. I'm not completely against antidepressants, but they tend to work by sort of narrowing our range of emotions, right? They kind of numb it down a little bit. And and I think psychedelics, they, they expand it. And one way they do it is by throwing us into the extremes. So we have this more expanded range of emotions. And very often people will encounter things they've been avoiding. They think about this this relationship that they had, they think about their job, they think about their partner, um, things that are that are difficult that we can get very good at avoiding. Um, I think sometimes we don't even know we're avoiding certain things. And psychedelics, mushrooms can be like, here, like, take a look at this. Uh, and that's not always pleasant, but it can be really helpful. Um, so, you know, people will come out of these experiences saying things like, I thought a lot about my job or I thought a lot about my grandfather or um, I remembered, you know, this trip I took and it reminded me that I really love traveling. Uh, I want to be kinder to my body. I want to be better to the environment. Uh, I want to spend more time with my kids. I want to be more present in my relationships. Uh, You know, these are common things that people already know, like none of that is new information. We all know we should be more present with our, with our kids, or we all know we should treat our bodies better, but there's something about this experience of it that, that can really um, set in stone, like a different path. And we see that we see people that with the right support and intention that they can kind of stay on a path of behavior change. And again, that I think speaks to the importance of the integration process and the therapeutic support that happens after an experience. Um, I, I thought a lot about like, like almost like two pathways then which I feel like that you talked about one pathway is actually like facing your discomfort at or processing things. And that might be a little bit more uncomfortable. And then the other one is almost like priming a system that's dormant. Like when you're depressed, priming that more positive 
system in order for you, your brain or you to recognize that you could experience that and there's another way of doing it. Or if you ruminate all the time and you're able to distance yourself from that and maybe see a little bit less relevant and experience what that's like for you to have almost like um, a learning experience to do things differently. Uh, that might be an oversimplification, but um, are those like two kind of pathways going on? Is there another pathway that you could think of that might be going on during this expansiveness and ego stretching? I, I think I think um, that makes me think of some of the neuroscience research and theory, which we haven't talked about much here. Um, and um, you know, many of the neuroscience researchers are talking about psychedelics um, inducing a period of plasticity after the experience. And you know, basically, if we're thinking about this from a, a, a CBT perspective. What we're talking about with plasticity is we're just talking about a period of enhanced learning. And, and so um, the thing about learning, though, is that uh, if, you're, if you're in a plastic state and you have enhanced learning, it really matters what happens during that period. So if there's a, 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 a hyperplastic state or a, a critical window of learning that opens for hours or days or weeks afterwards, then what you do in those hours and weeks afterwards is, is huge. Because um, if you could imagine you were, say, given a medication that made you very receptive to math learning, and, but you didn't do any math problems over the two weeks that it made you receptive, you wouldn't learn any more math. So it wouldn't matter that you took the drug and psychedelics. Uh, there's, there's research that suggests that that may be the case with psychedelics as well, that it opens up this um, possible learning window, which is part of why the, the therapy part, the, the integration phase may be so important is if, if this is true, then it's that the therapy is part of creating those learning experiences as people uh, bring their new experiences into contact with their environment and they try, you know, behavioral experiments and, and various things like that. Um, another piece of the neuroscience research connects with the, the comment you said about kind of positivity. Um, there's a, there's a set of research, uh, two papers published in, in nature by this, uh, scientists out of Johns Hopkins, Gould Dolan, where they, um, we're looking for this uh, idea of uh, critical windows for learning in mice um, and thinking that this might be true in humans. And basically what they found was that uh, it's complicated to explain all of the experimental conditions, but the, the, base, the basic idea of it is that mice have um, periods of their life where they're kind of more interested in social relationships with other mice. And then as they become adults, they're kind of not as interested in meeting other mice. <laughs> Basically, they don't get as much positive reinforcement from encountering other mice. And what they've shown is that you can take adult mice and if you give them a psychedelic, but only in the context of a, hanging out with another mice, if they get the psychedelic and they're not with another mouse, this doesn't happen. It's only if they get the psychedelic and they're hanging out with another mouse, then there's a period of time afterwards and it depends upon the psychedelic, but it could be hours, it could be weeks after. The psychedelic is long gone from their system and it could be hours or weeks afterwards. That preference for wanting to hang out with other mice and the positive reinforcement. They've actually done these trials where they see if there's more positive reinforcement. 
the mice are more positively reinforced by interactions with other mice for up to weeks after this one time of hanging out with another mouse with psychedelics on board. So what it, what it suggests is, and again, there's zero human evidence on this at this point, but what it suggests is that psychedelics may for open up a window that could last again for hours or weeks after the session, assuming the psychedelic was taken with a therapist or with another person that wherein their um, experience of social relationships may change. Perhaps they may um, get more out of them in some way. They may be more positively reinforced. Now, again, this is a very early days hypothesis um, growing out of the animal models, but um, that's a, that is one thing that's being kind of proposed as a possible mechanism. Yeah. And I'm just, you know, humans, um, like to default back to old behavior. Like when you're trying to do new, new learning, we're very quick to, to pop back. So a question that I had was like, like, and it's like, I don't think there's an answer because probably the study didn't, didn't do this. Maybe they did. So you do this thing with the mice and then you have them either interact with other mice or you have them go solo. And then three weeks later, introduce them to the mice. My suspicion would be that if they had that social break because they weren't practicing the behavior during that plastic window, that that mouse would be maybe somewhere in the middle or let less being less positively rewarded by social experiences. And that I would suspect that after you go through this type of therapy and you have these realizations, I want to eat better, let's say you actually practicing is not going to just stick stick. You need to practice what you preach in order for it to become an actual new pattern. And that's probably the hard bit, just like any other behavioral change that we do as humans, that it might be a catalyst exactly. for you, but you need to effortly move off that catalyst to keep, to keep going. Exactly. And that's what the integration is for. And that's where, you know, CBT or evidence-based approaches, you know, know a lot about how to help people to make behavior change and to take insight, which psychedelics can resolve a lot of insight. Like that is one of the, we didn't really mention this, but that is one of the things that's commonly mentioned with psychedelics is that people will have profound insights into their own lives, into their own functioning, um, into their own values and purpose. And, um, and then, then they come back to life and, uh, you know, that's where the therapist can be very helpful in helping, uh, to put that into action and also to help with often the dissonance that's created when you come back to life and it's like, you know, you're back to your old job, you know, doing whatever mundane thing you do on your job. And, you know, you just had this profound experience of the infinity of the universe. And how do you cope with, you know, flipping burgers or, um, you know, or even seeing your next client and the mundanity of that when you just came back from, you know, uh, ultimate love or an encounter with God and therapists, you know, have to, are, are there to help people to, put that together and find a way to exist, you know, in a, in an ordinary state of consciousness. Mm. All right. Um, before we wrap up, just want to give both of you guys the opportunity, any last thoughts or anything that we didn't cover that you think it's important for, um, our listeners to know. And, and, um, Brian, I'll start with you. Sure. I'd say that psychedelics are, uh, maybe not for everybody, um, and we're just, again, want to emphasize that we're in very early days of understanding who they're best for, what conditions that we 
might want to use this as a treatment for. And because of the resources that are involved in psychedelic assisted therapy, namely uh, most research trials have two therapists present during the dosing session. Uh, because it's a long day, because it's helpful to have two people in the room, uh, it's very expensive. Uh, MAPS, uh, which does the MDMA research, you know, put out a cost estimate that it's somewhere, you know, nine to twelve thousand dollars, something like that, for the full, you know, all the prep sessions, the three MDMA sessions, all the integration sessions, and so there's issues about accessibility and cost when this uh, new treatment is going to be disseminated. I, and I think, you know, that's something that um, many of us have in mind about how to make this uh, treatment as accessible, as, you know, cost effective as possible so that um, the most number of people um, can have access to it and that we're not replicating some of the existing systemic inequities in current healthcare by just having it be affordable to upper class folks who can afford it, especially given that insurance companies may not initially cover it. So I think it's a, it's a real issue that goes along with this treatment. And one of the concerns, I think that is fair, is that this will become sort of an exclusive thing. And um, there's many in the field who are hoping that this, this is available to everybody. And um, I should have asked this much earlier, but the conditions that this has been researched for, I'm assuming is depression, anxiety, OCD related disorders, trauma, um, Anything out of that that I'm missing that that the research is focusing on uh, relationships? I'm assuming, like couples counseling, maybe yeah, only in the context of PTSD so far in terms of mm. the research. Um, I mean, there's there's a there's a lot of things that have been studied at this point: um, smoking cessation, um, various forms of substance use, um, uh, eating disorders. Um, there are studies with uh, chronic headaches, um, body dysmorphia, um, social anxiety. Um, there's been quite a few studies. Some of the best research is on people confronting the end of life and having anxiety and depression around that. Um, I think with I think that covers most of them, and then that have been published. But there at this point are. There's probably studies on the majority of the, you know, the diagnoses in the DSM right now that are, that are in process, um, plus a number of, of health, like more physical health type conditions as well. Okay. And um, while we're here, fine, final thoughts on, on your side, Jason, of anything we didn't cover or anything important for people um, to take from this talk? Um, I would say just... I'm imagining there's probably uh, going to be ABC team members listening to this. And I guess I would encourage them to, you know, if they want to be involved, to, to be involved. And I, I personally think there's a need for more um, therapists who are coming from uh, CBT or more evidence kind of informed background. Uh, we need more of those folks in the psychedelic world um, to bring that practicality and the, the link to empiricism, because, um, you know, we've talked about a lot of uh, pieces here that uh, with psychedelics that triggers these transcendent experiences. And you know, we've talked about things like God and spirituality. And um, it, there are ways to study those things. And there are ways to work with those um, types of 
you know, human experiences and do that inside an evidence-based framework. And I would love to see more of that uh, involvement of psychotherapy folks, psychotherapy researchers that think about that in this area, because to date, the, the, the area has been, from a research perspective, been dominated by more like biological types, you know, neuroscientists and physicians. Um, and the, the psychotherapy has been quite neglected from a psych from a research standpoint. And then in terms of the community, um, if, if CBT folks start getting involved, they may find themselves feeling like outsiders a lot because most of the community is not folks who are, um, trained in CBT and often they will have very negative attitudes towards CBT even. And so, um, we'd encourage folks to just, uh, there are people out there who are bringing CBT into it and you gotta maybe look a little more. And, uh, we, we just, we want to, we want to encourage people that this is interesting and there, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of room here for, um, diversity, including diversity around, the types of scientific and you know, theoretical approaches that people are bringing to their work. So um, feel free to reach out to us uh, as well and trying to help people get connected if, if you want to learn more about um, the role of CBT and how that can work in the context of psychedelics. And we, we didn't say this, or you guys didn't say this explicitly, but the research is compelling, right? Like, like the uh, good impacts on mental health are, are there. Yeah, we yeah exactly. We didn't talk much about the research. It's early days. Um, there are some quite good studies. The, there's a couple really good studies on uh, with MDMA and PTSD that are looking like MDMA may be a very uh, important new treatment for PTSD, and it's likely that MDMA will be approved by the FDA in 2024 and available. Um, and uh, but there are also studies with a lot of other conditions. Perhaps one of the most impressive uh, is a couple studies on smoking cessation, just to give people some sense where one or two psilocybin sessions led to abstinence rates at one year follow-up of between 50 to 60%. Wow. And if you, if anybody knows the smoking cessation in the literature, like 20% is really good. 30% is, is, almost unbelievable. And so 50 to 60% is just off the charts. And so there have been two studies now with those kinds of outcomes from relatively small interventions. And these are actually CB, you know, it's motivational enhancement therapy combined with uh, psilocybin or a placebo. And um, I think that one's just, the, the effects are so remarkably better that um, it's just so obvious to see that this seems to help. Um, and, but we, we, we also have, you know, a lot of data with depression as well and, um, other, uh, some other conditions and, uh, early days. And, you know, we always have that, uh, the early studies always have bigger effects than later studies. And we're already starting to see some of those drops in effect sizes as more studies come out. But, um, I think all in all, as a researcher, the data are, are promising and, um, I'm sure we'll have failures and you know things that get moderated over time but it really does look like there are there are new, there's something new here for um for a lot of people that can augment what we already have in terms of evidence-based therapies hmm. um you mentioned if people want to reach reach out they could how, how can they find um 
your information or if they want to learn more about um, the research that you've been talking about, what, what resources can we offer people? Sure. The, the, well, the training, we, we do um, kind of introductory level trainings uh, regularly on at portlandpsychotherapytraining.com. And so that would be a good place to look for workshops. You can find our contact information there as well. Our contact info is also at portlandpsychotherapy.com. Uh, it'd be easy enough just to Google our names and find find our our stuff. And we have we have articles and, and things that are open access that people could read as well that we've written that relate to these topics. And um, I think just e- some some Google searches will will easily turn up stuff that that we've written. And if you have other yeah. ideas, yeah, just to say for if you're an ABCT member, there's a psychedelic SIG, a special interest group that you could consider joining. Uh, to, that Jason and I are part of and meet other other colleagues who are interested. Um, so even if you don't know anything about it, you just want to find out more, um, join the SIG and come to an event. Okay, well, um, I think you guys are both going to be at the uh, the conference next week, the convention next week. So yep. if you want to meet either of these uh, two people, um, they will be there and, and you know their, their names. And sorry if I offered you up without... Uh, <laughs> without giving you a nod first, but, um, and I'll I'll be there as well. Um, well, thank both of you guys for taking the time, uh, to talk with us. And I think a lot of people are very interested and I think it's an area that people just don't know too much about. And so I, I really appreciate you guys come and sharing your knowledge and what we know, you know, and so far. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah. It was great to be here.